It's the Asian Boxing Podcast. Scott and Colin. Boy, did we have an exciting weekend uh, full of high action, high octane fights. Scott, let's start with the Filipino card this past Saturday. We got to see some exciting young talent, and we probably got to see the KO of the year so far. Romero Duna. I'm poor Kobe Dana didn't know where he is still. And that was that was a right hand from hell, right on the chin. Yeah, one of the best guys you'd like to see the next few years is brutal. I'm very glad that Dana's uh Dana seems to be fine, but that was that was horrific watching him out call for a few minutes. Duno was like really concerned too, and uh, it was you know good to see his sportsmanship, but he was extremely concerned and I don't blame him. Because Donda no. looked like he was I mean, dead. Uh, that's how scary that knockout was. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was. It was one of the scariest ones. Dunder probably shouldn't have been in the ring with Duna, if we're being completely honest. No one would have expected such a brutal knockout. We would have expected Dunder to perhaps take one or two and find a nice place to lie down, but instead he decided to stay up, get up and try and fight, and that didn't work out well for him. And, of course, Duno being a lightweight, He's an exciting prospect. Usually the Asian countries uh, past like super featherweight, you know, don't do the best. I, I guess lightweight, they can be successful, but uh, it, it's harder once you hit that lightweight class. What do you think Duno can do at the world level? Duno looks like he's going to have the ability to go all the way. He really impressed on his U.S. debut a couple of years ago against Christian Gonzalez. He's been on an absolute roll since then, but his biggest issue is defensively. He has a lot of areas that he can improve on in regards to his defense, his counterboxing. He's only 23. He's very young, very powerful. There's a lot to like. He can go all the way if matched properly. I think that's the biggest thing, as you mentioned, his power. Sometimes that's all it takes, and you're, you're always in a fight no matter what. Um, you can be a great defensive fighter, and and not have that power, and it's kind of tough because guys just walk through your punches. But when you have power, um, you always have to be taken seriously, and Duno has a lot of power. Uh, Raymart uh, Gabayo also on this card, and gosh, he looked excellent as well. He might be the best bantamweight without a world title at the moment. I'm including Lewis Neri in that conversation. I think Gabayo is a very, very special fighter. Um. His opponent, Yuyu Nakamura, did a bit the same as uh, Danda did. He came to fight, and he paid for it. He uh, he didn't go down like Danda, but yeah, he looked outclassed. Gabayo, gosh, another young star, up-and-coming star from the Philippines. I do agree, though. He's probably one of the better Bantamweights, up-and-coming Bantamweights um, in that class. Well, what do you think is next for him? There has been rumors for a while that he'll be facing Liborio Solis, but they they seem to sort of pop up and vanish. It's clear that he needs bigger tests than this. He needs something big and something to put his name out there. So I think we will see him in against somebody of name value. Probably a faded name. It could be Solis. It could be somebody else around that sort of former champion type status. And then one more fight on the card. Uh, we got to see Dave Opalinario go up against Sarguya, and he also, a uh, young talent, only 20 years old, he, he looked impressive. Yeah, he's probably the standout um, 
no matter how good Gabal and Juno look, they were meant to take their opponents out. Apolinario was taking a big step up. He was up against a tough game, fellow Filipino hopeful, and I think I, I had a shot to be honest. Apolinario was too quick, too sharp, too accurate. He was incredibly talented. He uh, he looks a lot better than his brother did. His brother got a couple of world title challenges. Uh, he faced the likes of Koki Kamida, uh, Vasquez as well, but uh, his brother, John Mark Apolinario first. Dave looks so much better as a prospect. This card uh, that the Philippines put on, it was, gosh, impressive. And boy, do they have a lot of young talent coming up. Um, and also appreciate you putting it up on, on AsianBoxing.info for all of us to watch. I wasn't able to catch every single fight that was up, but I did see, again, that Duno KO and a Gabayo fight as well. So it's always nice when you have an outlet to kind of watch these fights. But I I do think they put on a very nice card this past weekend. Yeah, Big Crit needs to go to ESPN um, 5 in the Philippines. They are putting on these shows. They've got one of the one uh, coming up in this weekend. And it appears that they are wanting to expose a lot of young Filipino talent. They know that it's got to be the grassroots fan base. And this looks to be building on that sort of idea. They have some exciting broadcasters on there. I always get behind those broadcasters. They, they bring the energy, um, sometimes even more than the American broadcasters do. They certainly seem to be passionate about the fighters and about the scene that they're covering. It's not cheerleading for a fighter. It's actually a love of the sport, and I think that's, that's something we really need to appreciate. Still, I, I, my all-time favorite are and will always be Japanese broadcasters because they go nuts. They go wild. Yeah, how can you not love that sort of passion? Buddy, buddy. <laughs> you get lost in it even if you don't understand what they're saying exactly. I just know, like, one, one, two, and body. I'm like, okay, I understand boxing. That's all, that's universal language when it comes to boxing. Uh, speaking of a Japanese fighter who fought this past weekend, Hiroki Okada versus Raimundo Beltran. What a fight that was back and forth, especially in the earlier rounds. They kind of took a little bit of a break in the middle rounds. But um, unfortunately for Okada, he got exposed a little defensively. Yeah, he, he's a strange one. On the Japanese scene, there was times earlier in his career where he did look quite limited. He looked timid. He looked quite shy being hit at times against the likes of Valentin Hosokawa and Cristiano Aoki. He has got good power. He only really showed it once or twice against Beltran. Um, but He's never been a high work rate guy, and that showed in the later rounds against Beltran when he needed to dig deep, and instead it was Beltran digging deep and closing the shot in brutal fashion again. It seemed that Okada was doing a good job of boxing him in the later rounds, because I, I think in that second round, which was a great round, uh, he got knocked down, and then he stunned Beltran, really hurt him. Um, but I think that really brought Okada into a, a fight, which he didn't really want to be in, especially with a guy like Beltron. But in those later rounds, started to utilize his jab a lot more. Um, and then Beltron just caught him. And it speaks to what a great fighter Beltron is. Yeah, uh, even in his late 30s, Beltron seems to be putting on results that, that are standing out, let's be honest. I thought he was washed when he beat Paul Smarzes. I thought he really struggled for that. I thought he struggled with Jose Pedraza. I thought he also struggled with Brian Vasquez, thinking about it, but maybe the move up in weight is doing the world of good. It's what, his first fight at 140 pounds, and he looked rejuvenated at times. 
of course, now it looks like he'll have some type of a shot, maybe at the WBC title that Ramirez defended that same Sunday night. It was a great night of boxing. What is going to be next for Okada? You think he comes back to Japan? I think he's probably best off coming back to Japan. Uh, it's hard to see where he goes if he stays in the US. He's not. He's entertaining, but he's been dropped in both of his US fights. He's not looked comfortable at times in them. He needs to be matched very carefully by top rank. I think have options on his next fight. I think he sent a three-fight deal with top rank last year. Oh, he needs to return to Japan and perhaps look at fighting the likes of Koki anywhere just to try and rebuild his confidence. There's absolutely enough point in getting beaten up again in the US and getting a reputation as a gallant but beatable. He's, he's got to be matched very carefully. He's not a young chicken. He's you know 29 now, 30 at the end of the year. He needs to be rebuilt quickly but not have any more damage. And then on, on that undercard, you saw Genesis Cervania go up against Carlos Castro, and that was a fight we kind of expected Cervania to come away with, but Castro scored the upset. Yeah, that one wasn't actually televised up here, but from what I understand, Castro pretty much did what he wanted. Cervania was too slow, too clumsy. A pretty big upset. There's quite a few on the card, in fairness. This whole year, there's been a, a good amount of upsets, but that was another one to add to the docket. Continuing on with fights that happened last week, we had uh, Hino dominating Itagaki in the OBPF light flyweight title. Uh, Hino is really interesting because I have no idea how he has five draws on his record. And three of them came in his first three fights. Like he, he mu- I mean, it must have been really close, but that's just bad luck, I feel like, yeah. with the scoring. He definitely had bad luck in um, the first bout with Tita Ogida. He was announced as the winner, handed the belt. Then a scarring error was discovered, and he got a draw about two hours afterwards. Um, he then rematched Ogida and well, didn't allow the judges to get involved. He does seem to have something that makes judges dislike him. There was a judge in his first OPBF title defense against Malito Sabia, who somehow scored the bout to Sabia. He was then castigated, and the judge, as far as I'm aware, was suspended or banned by the GAB in the Philippines. Don't know why judges don't like Hina. He's, yeah, he's fantastic. He's heavy-handed. You know, he's heavier-handed than his record shows. He's very talented, very slippery. One of the leading contenders at 108 pounds, which is an insanely stacked division. Another defense of his belt, and he'll probably continue to push forward for a world title match in the near future. Yeah, without a doubt, he'll be in the mix for a while. Unfortunately, he's probably somewhere in the sort of third or fourth defense type range for a lot of these fighters who've got mandatories coming up and got the big fighters lined up. Um, we've got things like Hirota Kayaguchi versus Kenshiro being talked about. Angela Costa versus Fix Alvarado has been spoken about for June. He's going to get a shot eventually, but many to win. And then finally, looking at Ben Manaquil versus uh, Kiyose for the WBO Asia Pacific Bantamweight title. That one went the distance and was quite competitive. It wasn't as competitive as the Scott as suggests. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how one judge managed to get that 114, 113. It really wasn't 
uh, it was shown on Box and Rares, uh, which is a subscription service for those who are unaware that showed Japanese fights. And Kyoto was he was second best throughout. I'm really not sure how judges had that close. It's hard, I guess, and I, you know I can't really speak to anything because I've never been a judge. But it's hard sitting sitting ringside and and watching uh you know guys go at it and maybe your view is not the best. And I I don't know, I don't know. Yeah, you're right though. It, judging definitely needs to be better overall in the sport of boxing. In this particular case, I think it probably is because Kiyosu was the hometown guy. He was fighting Himiji and Hiogo. The fans were there for him. He's a bit of a Bit of an icon there. He uh, knocked out Ori Dongsis Samachai there last year. It could just be the hometown bias kicking in, but that's an awful scorecard. Manaquil, another young up and coming Filipino fighter. Uh, where do you see him when it comes to the Bantamweight division? He's got the potential to make him out there. He certainly has the skills to compete at the at the fringe, at the Oriental level, if you will, with the OPF champions, the WBA, Edge Pacific scene. How far he can go is it's probably limited because of how deep the division is and because of his relative lack of power. He started his career down at 105 pounds and he's not really built that man strength since. He's talented, but not going to have the power to compete at the highest level. A great weekend for Filipino boxers as we got to see some of their stars really shine and uh, it's an exciting time for them is, of course, a great tradition over there in the Philippines when it comes to boxers. It's cool to see a lot of up-and-comers uh, for the country. Yeah, um, I certainly think the sort of post-Pacquiao era of Filipino boxing is going to be incredibly exciting. A lot of people are going to have been driven by Pacquiao's achievements, what he's done, and they, let's be honest, they probably won't ever be another Manny Pacquiao but they could very easily be a wave of fighters in his shadow who are coming through at the same time. When you're growing up and literally the idol of your childhood, it has to be Pacquiao if you're from the Philippines. Uh, the, the man's not only a great boxer, but a philanthropist, a politician, and uh, he's really helped that country along. Uh, a lot of fights coming up this week, including a couple tomorrow. Yeah, really, really exciting card tomorrow. Um, it's actually got three really good fights on it, if if we're being honest. There is the OPF Super Bantamweight title fight between Hiroaki Teshiguara and Yuki Iriguchi. The Japanese light flyweight title bout between Kenichi Horikawa and Satoru Todaka. And I really like the look of Yoshimitsu Kimura versus Alan Ballaspin. It's got the, the ingredients to be a very, very exciting fight. Now, they all weighed in today, and uh, everyone was looking good and uh, ready to go. Yeah, yeah. Teshigara and Iriguchi both sounded very confident. Both sounded like they were looking for the knockouts. Teshigara, for those who haven't seen him, is one of the one of the stereotypical Japanese brawlers. He's very exciting, very in-your-face, very easy to watch. He's somehow managed to get a WBO number two bantamweight ranking. I'm not sure what he's done to do that, but... Hey, he's on the Virgil World title fight. Iriguchi holds a winner of Ryohai Takahashi, who we recently saw fight TJ Deheni. So he's a he's a credible challenger to Teshiguara. Kenichi Horikawa is a veteran, a veteran in every sense of the world word. He's 37, 38 with 54 fights on his record. 
He has more fights, I believe, than any other active Japanese fighter. He is a former Japanese and WBO Asia Pacific champion. Satoru Tadaka is about a decade younger than him. He's a novice. It could be a passing the torch. That could be a crowning of a old champion showing what he has left in the tank. The Kimura Valspin fight is probably the most 50-50. Kimura's very talented um, and he's looking to rebuild um, following a lot his first loss last year. Valspin is a tough guy. He's exciting. He's come forward. He suffered a really brutal knockout to Masaru Yoshi a couple of years ago, but has since come back to Japan and given really good performances. So it could be a really, really good card for the people in the venue. Why? Uh, why a Thursday? Why is that? Uh, why was that decided to to be the schedule for the card? Uh, the Corican Hall just hosts cards whenever. Um, it's usually based on what else is available, what dates are available, and things like that. They don't do their big cards on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays like the rest of the world. Uh, Dangans can be on any day of the week, which is this is a this isn't a Dangan show. This is a diamond glove card, which means they'll be shown on Fuji TV on tape delay. So part of the reason why it's possibly not Saturday, so they can put it on tape delay this Saturday. Fair enough. Fair enough. Everything's on tape delay over there, right? Everything apart from world title fights and some boxing race content, and even then some world title fights are. Everything on free TV either comes down to world title fight or tape delay. Exceptions to that are every Saturday, every first Saturday of the month, usually has a live card on premium TV. It And that's, it's cool. Um, you know, to have those at least being aired, but it is a little frustrating, I guess, if you are a boxing fan in Japan, you don't get that stuff live. Yeah, it's it's a strange one. The Corken Hall hosts so many live cars and they're so cheap to attend that I don't, I think they don't want to cannibalize the potential ticket sales, but it's coming at a cost to fans who perhaps can't make it to the venue for whatever reason anywhere and perhaps would prefer it on TV. It's even worse when it's a world title fight on Tabula. That's just inexcusable. Speaking of world title fights, this one's an eliminator. Juarez versus Iwasa. And this one, at least here in the States, is going to be televised on, on Fox for Iwasa, kind of about to get back after losing his title to TJ Doheny. Yeah, uh, Iwasa's US debut. He was supposed to fight there a couple of years ago. I need to have Sergio Perales fail to make weight, and that bout then got scrapped, but... Iwasa blows hot and cold. When he's good, he's really good. When he's not good, he can be terrible. Uh, Juarez, 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 as some people call him, uh, he's a he's a warrior. He brings fights. He makes battles. He drags people into wars. This has the opportunity to be the fight of the week, one of the fights of the year. Or we see Iwasa just not turn up very engaged and lose quickly. Why do you think that is? Why, why does he have some good nights and some bad? I'm not sure. Um, you kind of watch him against Lee Haskins and he hardly turned up. You watch him against Ernesto Sauerlong and he meandered to a very dull decision. Then you go back and watch him against Yukinori Ogunny and he looks sensational. Uh, I don't know if it's mental. I don't know if it's an attitude issue. Um, a weight issue, perhaps, still. But when he's on and everything's ticked, 
he's so destructive with that straight left hand. He's got a really sharp jab, fantastic timing. Other times he just looks lazy. And no real reason for it, no rhyme or reason. And then one more uh, interesting fight uh, for a young and up and comer. Um, we have Ergoshev taking on Fox. That's actually going to be in Mulvane, Kansas, a super lightweight bout. That's only three hours from where I live. I could drive over there and uh, take a peek at that one. You so should. There's so much <laughs> exciting talent on that card. Uh, Ergoshev, for those who haven't seen him, why have you not seen Agni, the most destructive super lightweight out there? Uh, he's so much fun. Everything he throws seems to be thrown with dynamite power. Mikol Fox poses a completely different test to anybody he's faced so far. Um, Fox, for again, for those unaware, he's a bit of a physical freak. He's six foot one, six foot two, fighting 140 pounds. One of the few times Ergashev isn't the taller man in the ring, and he could struggle around the job. He may struggle with his height and reach, but should come out on top. I'm excited for that one. And uh, again, Ergashev, we might be seeing him pretty soon. I, I think he's, what, mid-20s? So we could probably see him maybe pretty soon challenge for some type of uh, title, lower title at the world level. Yeah, him and uh, Countryman... Uh, fellow Uzbek, Shakram Giyasov are both going to be there, thereabouts for world titles by the end of the year. Uzbekistan, killing it. Killing the game right now. They're fun to watch, aren't they? They've got nowhere and there's a bunch of them that are just destroying everybody. I can never pronounce any, like, any of their names correctly, but, oh my goodness. Like you said, he is just a wrecking ball when he gets in that ring. Yeah, you've got him, you've got Giyasov, you've got Akhmadeliev. Uh, Jalalov at heavyweight. There's so many exciting talents coming from Uzbekistan. And they're all turned pro at the same time. They're all sort of in the 23 to 30 range. For the next five or six years, you're going to hear a lot about them. As we enter the championship rounds here of the podcast, uh, any uh, big, big news uh, this week? Oh, there's, there's been one or two things, hasn't there? You know, we heard that Masayuki Kuroda's finally going to get a shot at Maruti Mathlana. Is that big enough for you? That's huge. I will take that because that's going to be a war. There's also the news that Katsunari Takeyama has got a date for his first amateur fight, or rather return to the amateur ranks. He'll be in a tournament starting on March 1st as he attempts to become an Olympian. See, So this was a man who fought professionally, and he's going back to the amateur ranks. Yeah, you don't hear that much, do you? Um, he's become a full-time amateur. He's not like Amnat Rowan Rowan and Hassan Damage Kam, who became sort of an amateur for a tournament or two. He's becoming a full-time amateur until he retires from the sport altogether. I mean, if he makes the Olympics, I'm sure there'll be some endorsements coming his way. Yeah, uh, he's a strange one. Takiyama's basically been a trailblazer right through his career. He handed back his Japanese license so that he could try and become a Grand Slam champion winning IBF and WBR titles. He then handed back his professional license to try and become an amateur. Originally got told no one brought, I think it was around 100,000 signatures to say, to show the sport behind him. He He's going to have a hell of a story to tell his grandkids when he grows up. 
bit of news that I, I think I, I think maybe not just Asia cares about, but I think the world. Now Inoue, he now has a, a date. Yeah, the monster is coming to the land of the Loch Ness monster. Inoue will be fighting in Glasgow um, against Emmanuel Rodriguez as part of the WBSS May 18th, I think, at the SSE Hydra. It'll be the first time in history a Japanese world champion has defended the title in the UK. Now, as a man from UK yourself, how excited are you and are you going to be going to this bout? We'll be trying to go. I've actually got things booked that weekend and the weekend after, so it's depending on whether I can convince my partner to go to a certain thing by herself. <laughs> it's like, oh, this, is a, this might be a once-in-a-lifetime thing, you know? Let's just go. Come on. I got you this for Christmas. Yeah, uh, maybe. It's more important. This is work. Oh, you're right. It's very yeah. important. Um, but yeah, apparently we're meant to be seeing a comedian on the same day. So, oh, let's see what we can talk her into. Is she a fighting fan? She's not a fighting fan. Um, but she might be convinced. It involves going back to Glasgow, and who doesn't want to go to a wonderful Glasgow? I've never been to Glasgow, but I've heard it's gorgeous there. You've heard wrong. Um, Glasgow, <laughs> that's always nice rainy. to the people of Scotland. Yeah. I'm sure the people from Scotland understand Glasgow's always raining and it's always dreary. Um, it'll be very different conditions for both anywhere and Rodriguez. I don't think anyone's really 100% sure why they're putting it in Glasgow. It doesn't make sense for either fighter. It makes sense from the WBSS standpoint of trying to save money. Even the main event of the card isn't from Glasgow. The main event of the card is, of course, Josh Taylor, who's from Edinburgh, the capital of Scotland, not the second city. How far is that from Glasgow? It's a good train journey. Uh, we in the UK don't really have many internal flights. We're not like you guys who can jump on a plane and go from wherever to wherever. It's about two hours on a train. None of your main fighters are from the city they're fighting in. He has a good spot, and Taylor will probably fill half the arena, but she made tickets cheap. Yeah, interesting why they picked that then. I always thought, it, I mean, it was close, but obviously I don't know anything about Scotland. And uh, I thought, okay, well, I mean, at least it's around the area where he's from. But um, yeah, and then that fight still, we don't even know if it's going to be made. I mean, they announced that it was going to be made, but then... There are other rumblings that says his dancing partner might not be coming. Yeah, no one seems to quite know what Ivan Berinchik's doing. Uh, is he out? Is he in? Is he shaking all about? The issue is that if that fight's now off, then you've got a Japanese guy against a Puerto Rican guy headlining in Scotland. <laughs> oh, boxing. You never cease to amaze us. It would have more sense to either put it in Puerto Rico or put it in Japan, let them stack the card, let the home promoter put on the show. Either Hashi or I'm not sure who um, who promotes Rodriguez, but let one of them take hold of it. Just get the bout on and get it sorted. We still don't know what Nanito Donaire's bout's happening or when that's going to happen with uh, Zolani Tete. It's a mess. This whole second season has been a mess. I hope and I pray that this fight just gets off. I mean, as long as it comes off clean and they get into that ring and fight, that's all that really matters. But it has been quite an ordeal 
with the WBSS, just keeping up with everything that's been going on. They've been uh, unorganized, to say the least. And to think it started really well. They wanted to put on all these double-headed shows. It's uh, week after week after week. It was. It shows so much promise. It did. I mean, I love the idea. I love that the best get into the ring with the best. And they go for all the belts. That's a great idea. You, you, you know, go in between promoters and you set everything up. But the fact that pay- fighters aren't getting paid, the fact that they don't have enough money to schedule fights on certain dates. I mean, these guys should have been fighting in March, to be quite honest. Yeah, you should be looking at the semifinal in the summer. The winners get a fight at the end of the year, perhaps. You know, getting you in in December in his first post WBSS belt, and instead we may not see the finals until October, November. Which again, as long as they can get there, that would be better than nothing. Yeah, tournament boxing is so weird. You look at you look at how many failed tournaments we actually have. Whatever happens to the WBC uh, Evander Holyfield tournament from. Uh, is it last year, year before? The eight-man tournament with five judges. Brilliant idea. Completely vanished. We don't get enough really good tournaments. And that's a shame. It, follow, it gives us a narrative to follow. It gives us a narrative to sell every card on. It's something that I think Rookie of the Year tournaments is so brilliant at. The Boxino series that ESPN did a couple of years ago were fantastic for it. I don't know if it's Perhaps just money issues, but let's have more tournaments, please. I'll throw a pretty please in there for you as well, Scott. It's the Asian Boxing Podcast. If you want to continue to follow the Asian Boxing Podcast, go to our website, asianboxing.info. All the latest Asian boxing news along with profiles, features, and of course, the internet's biggest library of Asian boxing videos on asianboxing.info. It's been Scott and Colin, the Asian Boxing Podcast. We'll talk to you next week.